I'm Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. I'd like to highlight some content from the May edition of this journal. The first article relates to making decisions to limit treatment in life-limiting and life-threatening conditions in children. The revised Royal College of Paediatrics and Child Health guidance on making decisions to limit treatment in life-limiting and life-threatening conditions in childhood is published as a supplement this month. The document provides an ethical and legal framework for practising clinicians revised to reflect the changes in the scope and availability of advanced technology and in the emphasis and application of ethical and legal principles in decision-making. The document sets out the circumstances under which withholding or withdrawing life-sustaining treatment might be ethically permissible. It's important to recognise this isn't about the circumstances under which such treatment must certainly be withheld or withdrawn. The document describes situations in which individual children should potentially be spared inappropriate invasive procedures. The document sets out three sets of circumstances when treatment limitation can be considered because it is no longer in the child's best interest to continue, because it cannot provide overall benefit. Firstly, when life is limited in quantity. Secondly, when life is limited in quality. And thirdly, informed, competent refusal of treatment. The document covers the ethical and legal framework and the process of decision-making and the practical aspects in detail. It's a very powerful document which will help you as professionals and will help families of children with complex disorders in their desire and responsibility to act in the best interests of the child. The second article I'd like to cover relates to the physical and neurodevelopmental outcomes in children with single ventricle circulation. It is of particular interest. Hypoplastic left heart syndrome is now mostly diagnosed in fetal life. Survival has increased dramatically from a baseline of zero in the 1980s to now 65% at age 5 and 55% at age 10 as a consequence of the introduction of staged surgical palliation and transplantation. In this issue, Davidson and colleagues report the physical and neurodevelopmental outcomes of children with hyperplastic left heart syndrome. That's 58 of 62 survivors from 105 live births during the study period 1995 to 2003. They compare these children with other patients with functionally single ventricle circulation, that's 44 who survived to age 10 years. There are significant differences. Subjective reduction in exercise tolerance, 72% versus 45%. Educational concerns reported more frequently, 41% versus 23%. Referral to a psychologist, 29% versus 14%. Diagnosis of a behavioural disorder, 12% versus 0%. 
and referral to other specialist services 67% versus 48%. These differences may reflect many factors, including that in hypoplastic left heart syndrome, flow through the aortic arch is retrograde in utero. This is an interesting concept discussed in the paper, but also the fact that patients are sicker and that they are effectively a historical cohort now with significant advances in paediatric cardiology over the last 10 to 15 years. Taking both conditions together, the paper highlights the significant long-term morbidity of infants born with complex congenital heart disease and the importance of long-term follow-up by the multidisciplinary team. The third article I'd like to cover relates to reducing hospital-acquired infections and improving the rational use of antibiotics in a developing country. It's a very impressive report, effectively a quality improvement initiative. Hospital-acquired infections are amongst the most significant causes of morbidity and mortality in healthcare and challenging to impact on, particularly in resource-poor settings. In this issue, Murney and colleagues report the implementation of a multifaceted infection control and antibiotic stewardship programme and look at the effectiveness in terms of reduction of hospital-acquired infection and reduction of inappropriate antibiotic usage. This was done at a teaching hospital in Indonesia over 27 months. The results are impressive. The intervention consisted of hand hygiene, antibiotic stewardship rounds and enhanced infection control practices. There was a significant reduction in hospital-acquired infection from 22.6% to 8.6%. A significant reduction in inappropriate antibiotic usage using the WHO Pocketbook of Healthcare as guidance from 43% to 20% and hand hygiene compliance increased from 18.9% to 62.9%. The impressive finding is that during this study period, in-hospital mortality fell from 10.4% to 8%. So this data set supports the fact that interventions like this used across any healthcare setting will impact on morbidity and mortality from hospital-acquired infection. The fourth article I'd like to cover this month relates to patterns of bruising in preschool children. In this issue, Kemp and colleagues describe the prevalence and pattern of bruising in a longitudinal study of 328 children aged less than 6 recorded weekly for 12 weeks. This was by looking at the same individuals on repeated occasions. 3,523 bruises were reported from 2,570 data collection points. 6.7% of 1,010 collections from pre-mobile children had at least one bruise. That was 2.2% in babies who could not roll over, and 9.85% in those who could, compared with 45.6% of early mobile and 78.8% of walking child collections. The most commonly affected sites in all ages was below the knees, 
Rare sites for bruising at any age included ear, neck, genitalia and hands, plus buttocks and front trunk in early and pre-mobile children. The data is in the paper. This data should help clinicians understand the pattern of everyday bruising and recognise children who have an unusual number or distribution of bruising and require more specialist assessment, including consideration of physical abuse. These issues are discussed further in an accompanying editorial. The fifth article I'd like to cover relates to obsessive compulsive disorder in children and adolescents. This is part of our ongoing review of important psychiatric topics which are of importance and relevance to the wider readership. Obsessive compulsive disorder is characterised by repetitive intrusive thoughts, their obsessions, and distressing time-consuming rituals which are compulsions. It was previously felt to be rare, but recent epidemiology suggests a prevalence of 0.4-4%. In an authoritative and comprehensive review in this issue, Krebs and colleagues review the etiology, underlying pathophysiology, assessment and management, including the challenge of distinguishing obsessive-compulsive disorder from autistic spectrum disorder and tic disorders in adolescents. Therapy is by cognitive behavioural therapy and or medication. The efficacy of therapy and recent developments in the field are discussed. The condition is important to consider, assess for and refer if appropriate in order that young people with this chronic disabling condition get the best possible input. There's a very useful short obsessive screener listed. Do you wash or clean a lot? Do you check things a lot? Is there any thought that keeps bothering you that you would like to get rid of but cannot? Do your daily activities take a long time to finish? Are you concerned about putting things in a special order or are you very upset by mess? Do these problems trouble you? These are questions that are helpful to use and practical to administer when at-risk children are assessed. Please refer to the journal website for the full versions of these articles that I've discussed. I'm Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. Thanks for listening.